Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you can always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God. All right. We want to welcome everyone to our last week of part one, anyways, of our study of the kingdom of God. And just to review a little bit last week, and you guys feel free to ask any questions or comments. What I was, what, what I wanted to get across last week, but we've got Romans eight. Obviously, that's kind of a landmine. I walked in. I, I walked into that one. Um, is the idea that the kingdom of God is cosmic and universal in scope, and what I mean by that is that the kingdom of God includes the restoration of all of creation. And we looked at that very briefly at the end of last week's study. That Romans eight, the whole creation is groaning waiting for its liberation from its bondage to decay, Paul says. And so the idea of that is, as Paul brings the, the great argument in the book of Romans, uh, the second part, at least chapters five through eight, to a climax, he's saying, yeah, and this restoration is going to include the, the entirety of creation. And so just bear that in mind. We start in the Garden of Eden in, in the book of Genesis. We end in the Garden of Eden in the New Jerusalem. And that's the whole idea that the biblical story is taking us somewhere and it's this restoration of creation. So that may lead to other questions that we can get into um, next time. Obviously, we're going to pick up kind of part two of what is the kingdom of God? And we're going to start asking, you know, why does this matter? And what does it mean to us? And all the things that are related to that. So, okay, so tonight we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount and I'll tell you why we're going to do that. And, and But does anybody have any questions? No, we're good. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, looks like Helen has evaporated into some cosmic bliss. That's a really cool picture, by the way. That's a really cool picture. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'll leave it on. <laughs> well, no, you can, you can take it off. It's just... So Matthew 5, if someone wants to read, if you're like me, you can't just listen. You kind of have to read along with them or otherwise just close your eyes and, and listen. Uh, we're going to read the, the, the Beatitudes, what they're commonly called the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 9. The questions are going to be, what stands out? Uh, what are some things that you notice uh, in these verses? Matthew 5, uh, 3 through, well, we can even do 3 through 12, but really it's 3 through 9. But if somebody wants to read Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Excellent. Thank you. That was kind of like a um, professional voiceover reading right there. So really good. So the question is this, you guys can discuss here. What stands out? What do you notice? What are some of the thoughts that you have as you listen or hear or read along with these verses? Think of, my, of, of verses three through nine for just a minute. The question, think of the question or questions in light of verses three through nine. Well, one spiritual thing. fullness. Okay. What's that, Karina? Karanaka? Uh, spirit, right. Spiritual fullness. Okay. Okay. Very good. The idea of spiritual fullness. Very good. Uh, Derry? Also, the things that he's saying are, it kind of goes along with what you were saying is that they're not the things, it's not blessed are those who are rich. It's mm. blessed are those who have these qualities that the world may or may not care about even in that at that time and on top of that it's the opposite of what you would think they would be that why they're blessed very good somebody else um, anthony yeah consistent with the, the fulfillment outlook that you're always uh, given to us and you know adhering to I mean, who's the only one who really fulfilled those in totality? It's Christ himself. Okay. Every one of those traits, if you reflect on them intimately, I mean, that's, that's an image of him more than of any of us. I mean, he lived out every one of those, those blessings so, okay. for our benefit. Yeah. Anybody else? It's interesting, too, compared to Luke. Luke is more physical characteristics, whereas Matthew is more almost spiritual. Okay. Luke's blessed are the poor, and Matthew's blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's blessed are those who are hungry and Matthew's those who are hungry for righteousness. Okay. Yeah, very good. Good, good observation. Somebody else. It's also a descriptor of the kingdom of God. Yes. How do you know that? Well, partially because it's, it, that's, it's kind of like how it's framed. It, and the yeah, last exactly. phrase it's, is for theirs is the kingdom of God. Cause I want the first one starts with, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the last one is for theirs Excellent. is the kingdom of God. Excellent. Everyone see that verses three and nine, the promise of blessing is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. We'll, we'll talk about kingdom of heaven in just a minute. So it begins and ends with reference to the kingdom of, that's how we know the Beatitudes are three through nine, not three through 12. Obviously 10, 11 and 12 are, is an add on, but essentially it's those eight verses, three through nine, they both end with the blessing being the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. So there's your frame. Excellent. Anything else? For myself, it seems like a great gift. Okay. Yes. Um, an amazing gift. Yes. And it is saying, don't worry. Uh, you have this amazing gift. Don't worry. Um, even the lilies of the field are cared right. for God. Cared That's for right. 
So that's, and that's chapter six that you're quoting, right? Of, of Matthew. So he's going to say that in the very same yeah. speech. Yes. Very good. Okay. Anybody else? So let's put these in this more into a larger context. I think one of the, the key points that Derry brought out is the fact that this is not what you expect. I mean, think about it. Blessed are those who mourn. No, if you're mourning, that's not a blessing. That's your mourning. That's not a good thing. You know, right. And blessed are the uh, the meek and the merciful, and it, it's kind of the opposite of what you expect, etc. All right, let's look at this as a larger context. I'm going to go through the notes a little bit. I think I gave you the link, or I referenced the link for uh, the YouTube. I did a seminar at a church in Northern California for listening on the podcast also, and it's on YouTube. Just search YouTube, Rob Dalrymple, Sermon on the Mount. It should come up. I think there's four or five videos there, and each about an hour long. So we went through the entire discussion of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's begin. Letter A in the notes is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, on the Mount is the pinnacle of Jesus' proclamation. And, and kind of how, how we know that is this. The first point is Jesus is portrayed as the new Moses. That's the first fill in the blank. Jesus is being portrayed as the new, the new Moses. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, certainly Jesus is something greater than Moses. There's no question about that. But Matthew is framing his Gospel in light of Jesus as Moses par excellence. And so what you see in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew has, has there's actually five sermons in the, of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and I won't point them out right now, but Matthew 5 is one of them, 5, 6, and 7 is one of them, Matthew 23 is another one. But you have five sermons of Jesus, and, it's very, and they're very clearly marked, and the significance of that is that Moses wrote five books. And so Jesus is being portrayed as this new Moses, he's got five books, he's got five sermons. You also, of course, have the fact that you have blessed in this particular sermon, and that obviously is what the book of Deuteronomy and the covenant's about that we've discussed a few times. And tell me if I need to explain that a little bit more, more detail. But Moses is the one who gives them the covenant. And the covenant says, blessed are those who do this and cursed are those who do that. And the sermon in Matthew 23 actually is the cursing. So you only have the blessings in this sermon, but you get the cursings in Matthew 23. What are those? What are you Pharisees? What are you hypocrites, etc.? So you see Jesus as being this, this new Moses. But there's actually a lot more than that. Where did Moses end his life? Anybody know the story of Moses at all? Where did, where did Moses end his life? Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo is in modern-day Jordan. And, it over, and if you look from the top of Mount Nebo and you look to the west, you're going to see I'm sorry, the Dead Sea, the Jordan River Valley, and then beyond that, Jerusalem and the Promised Land. Moses was not allowed to go into the Promised Land, if you know the story. He was going to die on Mount Nebo, and he commissions Joshua to take over uh, the, the leadership and lead the Israelites into the promised land. And Moses dies on Mount Nebo. Well, turn to the end of the gospel of Matthew for a moment, Matthew 28. And it says in verse, uh, somebody want to read verses 16 to 20, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I'll go. Thank you. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Matthew is actually very intentional, and we'll see this even more in a few minutes, by noting that Jesus ends his life or his ministry where? On a mountain. And Moses on a mountain in Mount Nebo says, go into the promised land, right? He commissions the Israelites to go into the promised land. 
And Jesus now ends on a mountain in, in uh, Galilee and says, go into all nations and make disciples. And if you read what he says in verses 17 or 18 to 20, we well, call this the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It actually has the form of a covenant. A covenant begins by a proclamation of who God is. I am the Lord your God, and I'm making this covenant with you today. Look at what Jesus says. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. I am the sovereign God. I'm the one who's in charge of this. And then he says a command, go ye therefore, and Sinai covenant would be go in the promised land, and I'm going to make you kings and priests, etc. And then there's a promise of assurance. And the promise of assurance is, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So when you read Matthew 28, 16 to 20, it's in the form of a covenant. It's on a mountainside, and it's a commissioning of the disciples to go into all nations. It's exactly what Moses did, except Moses, of course, said, go into the promised land. So there's another evidence that Jesus, of course, is living out, is fulfilling the ministry and call of Moses as the lawgiver. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what we want to read actually is the fact that this is the new law for the new people of God. Now, as we've said before, and just to reiterate, of course, go back to Matthew 5 now. Jesus says, well, this new law actually doesn't replace the old one. It simply fulfills the old one. So Matthew 5, uh, if somebody wants to read verse 17, there you go, For, uh, 17 and 18. Yep. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay, so this is not replacing the law of Moses. It's fulfilling the law of Moses. And we're going to maybe expound on that a little bit further as much as time allows as we, as we proceed. Now, the next thing to know here is Matthew 4, verse 23. Somebody want to read that, and then somebody else wants to read Matthew 9, verse 35, 4.23 and 9.35. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Very good. Somebody else read Matthew 9.35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Now, if you didn't catch it, but if you and if you didn't catch it, just simply go back Matthew 423 and Matthew 935 later. They're almost identical. In both cases, Jesus is going to all the villages and he's preaching the kingdom of God and he's healing every kind of disease. Really clear. And we call that an inclusio, right? The same thing as Matthew 5, verse 3, and Matthew 5, verse 9, the blessing is the kingdom of heaven, the blessing is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are framed by reference to the kingdom of heaven. That's how you know the beginning and the end. So here you know the beginning and the end. Now, whoever put the chapter numbers in missed it, because Matthew 4, 23 should probably be the beginning of chapter 5. There's, there's your mark. That's the beginning. Uh, and, and whoever put the chapter numbers in did a really good job, by the way, in most cases, but they missed a few of them. And here's one of them. The, the section begins somewhere. And again, by the way, a frame doesn't mean it's the absolute beginning or the absolute end. There could be 20 verses afterward, but that's the beginning and the end. Here's the significance of that. When we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we almost always talk about Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Matthew frames the Sermon on the Mount in 4.23 and in 9.35, meaning Matthew includes 8 and 9. 
in the discussion. And what 423 and 935 say is that Jesus was going around the villages and he was preaching about the kingdom of God. And number two, he was healing various kinds of diseases. And when you read Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, here's what you find out. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is his teaching on the kingdom of God. Matthew 8 and 9, he's healing every kind of disease. And you can't separate those. We so, I mean, there's scores and scores of books out there and really good ones also on the Sermon on the Mount. And they're almost always on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But that's incomplete because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the, the teaching or the preaching on the kingdom of God, which Matthew says you can't separate from the healing of every kind of disease. They go hand in hand. And you also can't take the healing of every kind of disease and separate from the teaching on the kingdom of God. They go together. So something to, to bear in mind there. This is Well, this is restoration. Yes. It, I mean, it's like if you're talking restoration, you have to do restoration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. So I never thought of that until you just said that. Oh, well, very good. When I'm trying to decide, you know, what are we going to discuss each week in a class like this? Luke 4 is at the top of the, of the barrel, right? I mean, and Luke 4 is about Jesus goes into a synagogue in Nazareth and says, the kingdom of God's at hand. I'm here to fulfill. And this is what it looks like. The blind will receive sight. The lame will walk again. And the debts will be forgiven. It's restoration. It, that's exa- It's jubilee, right? And so that's exactly what's happening. So uh, very, very much so. If we were to trace ourselves, and I think I did this in the notes so that if you if you read the notes for tonight, you're going to get a lot more out of it than what I'm going to do here in, a, in a one a cursory one minute. If you read Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you can see that Jesus is living out the story of Israel. He's not just Moses. It climaxes in Moses on Mount Sinai. But he's living out the story, the story in Israel. In chapter 1, promise of the birth, Joseph and, and uh, Mary come from the north like Abraham did. And they moved down south to Bethlehem. Abraham was up in the north and he moved it south to Hebron. Then, of course, they leave and they flee to Egypt. And of course, the Israelites went off into Egypt several hundred years after the time of Abraham. And then they flee Egypt and they leave it. And Jesus also leaves it. And as uh, we've discussed before, when the Israelites left Egypt, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized in the Red Sea. And Paul says that. You're like, well, they didn't even get wet. I thought the, I thought the Egyptians, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, meta, it's a metaphor for the fact they went through the waters. And they were bath. And of course, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. See, well, here's what's going on. Come, comes from the north to the south, born in Bethlehem, escapes to Egypt, leaves Egypt and is baptized. And then what happens with the Israelites after they leave Egypt and are baptized in the Red Sea? They are then spend 40 years in the wilderness being tempted. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then he goes off into the wilderness in, Mark, in Matthew 4, and he's tempted by the, desert, by the devil. The Israelites were tempted for 40 years. Jesus was tempted by, for 40 days. While that was going on, Moses goes up on a mountainside and receives the law. And in Matthew chapter 5, it says Jesus goes up on a mountainside. And so, Luke 6 that we looked at a few weeks ago says Jesus gave this sermon on the plain and Matthew says it was on a mountain. Matthew places it on a mountain because that's where Moses got the law. Doesn't mean it didn't happen on a mountain. That's irrelevant. The point actually is he's paralleling Moses. And as Moses gave the law to the Israelites, Jesus gives the law for the New Testament people of God. Now, we can. this will certainly be an overstatement. 
but I would say, and I've said before, that if we only had a couple pages of our Bibles, you know, if the, the government were coming in and going to confiscate all our Bibles and burn our buildings down and, you know, send us off into prisons, and you had two chapters or two pages to rip out of your Bibles, it's these pages. Rip out Matthew 5, 6, and 7, stick them somewhere where hopefully they don't find out or memorize them so you don't ever lose them, and you're good to go. Now, it's an overstatement because obviously we need Matthew 8 and 9 to to show what the, what, what the kingdom of God looks like, not just him talking about it, but him doing it. And certainly we need, you know, Paul to explain what it means, you know, about marriage or what it means about loving our neighbors or family relationships and servants and Matt. We need all that too, but this is really where we start. This is absolutely the pinnacle of Jesus' proclamation. He's being portrayed as a new Moses and as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. So he goes up on a mountainside and he gives the new law, somewhat like Moses did, except it's a little bit different. Jesus is going to say, so if you look at Matthew 5, verse 21, he's going to say, you heard that it was said, and he basically is going to quote Moses. And then he's going to say in verse 22, but I say to you. Now, this is really provocative, by the way, because you heard that it was said is Moses. This is God speaking through Moses. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, I'm going to one-up that. He's not saying like, well, throw away what Moses said. He's like, I'm going to take what Moses said, and I'm going to add to that or intensify it. And he's clearly putting himself as actually the one who's giving the law. Moses received the law, but Jesus is actually giving the law. So I really would say if we want to know what the kingdom of God's like, what it means, and what we're called to do as Christians, how to live it out, this is where we go. We could spend weeks and weeks on this passage, of course, but we need to reflect and meditate upon this passage and understand it and, and digest it. And I can't stress enough how much value there is in just reading and rereading and rereading and memorizing or just meditating on these three chapters over and over and over and over again. So let's try to put them in a little bit of a context then. Is that good? Any, any questions before we go any further? Rob, why, why do you think, I mean, you, I think you gave us the answer a moment ago, but why do you think Jesus did this? He had to clarify or not just clarify, but make it even stronger. Because this is what the law, it's a great question. This is what the law was intended to do all along. But as we discussed last week, we're incapable of doing it. So what we, what we would really want to add to our conversation tonight, which I'm, I'm just not going to take the time to do, because if I get distracted, you guys know how it goes. I'll never finish, right? Because I'll go down that path <laughs> and I'll have a lot of fun with it. But what we would want to do in this is we want to bring in like Ezekiel 37 and places like that, that talk about the fact that when the new covenant comes, that it's going to come with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to give you a new heart. Uh, in Ezekiel 37, it says the Holy Spirit will give you a new heart He'll, he'll cleanse you and wash you anew. He'll take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The heart of stone is the law written in, in the Ten Commandments. The heart of flesh now is, I'm going to give you this, this human ability by the Spirit cleansing and renewing you as a new, to be able to do this. And so, does that make sense a little bit? Yes. Do, do you think it had anything to do with, or in addition to, um, the Pharisees, thinking they knew how to live the law and uh, I'm, uh, Jesus says, Hey, I'm telling you, you think, you know what the law is, but I'm telling you, you don't just recite it and know it. You, you live it. 
and this is how you live it. Yes, absolutely. And that's what happens in Matthew 23 when he says, okay, you Pharisees, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you? But I would clarify a little bit what we say, what Jesus means by live it compared to what they meant because they thought they were living it. When Jesus says, you're not living it, they're like, of course we are. And remember what we said last week, the law is holy. It's righteous. It's good. So get out of your mind this idea that unfortunately came from Luther too much that the law is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's simply that we're not capable of doing it. But the law was meant to give life. I think that's Leviticus 18 or 19. I'm not sure. I have to look it up. The problem was the flesh couldn't do it. We need to be re- redeemed, regenerated, restored, and empowered by the Spirit to be able to do it. So again, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have to always remember, there but for the grace of God, go, I, I, go, I, I need the Spirit to be able to do this on a daily basis. I'm, I'm, I don't want to skip ahead yet, but we'll take it to, to another level. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Okay. So here we go. Next point now is this. So letter B, the Sermon on the, on the Mount is the new law for the new people of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the new law for the new people of God. And so, and I think this is on your notes, Matthew 5, 17, which we already read. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come them to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now look at Matthew 7, verse 12. Right? Matthew 7, verse 12. However you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. And there you go. Basically, the beginning and the end. Obviously, we're a few verses in. And Matthew 7, verse 12 is a few verses from the end. But again, it's a frame. And the frame has to do with what? The law and the, what I'm telling you is the law and the prophets. And it's the law and the prophets in, as they were intended to be and intended to do. Right, now, let's go for a second now, and you can keep your fingers in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to Deuteronomy 30. To Deuteronomy 30. So if you've heard me talk before, I've said that maybe the four most important chapters in the Old Testament are Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30. So if we only had four chapters of the Old Testament, we, those would be the four chapters we want. Deuteronomy 27 through 30, those four chapters. And what you have in those four chapters is the law and the blessings for obeying and the curses for disobeying. And so here's what happens. If you, if you do it, you're, you're blessed. If you don't do it, you're cursed. And then it discusses, and if you don't do it, and we all know you're not, the curse for disobeying is going to be, you're going to be kicked out of the land. And then Deuteronomy 30 which might be the single most important chapter in the Old Testament. And that's an overstatement, but you get what I mean. It says, okay, um, after God sends you out of the land because you disobeyed, here's what's going to happen. If you like repent, and that's verse two, and most Bibles say like return to me, and the word return has this idea of repenting. If you are, when you're over in Babylon and then you repent, I'm going to bring you back. When I bring you back, it's going to be great. Now look at verse six. The Lord your God will, um, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Ah, this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 2, that when we get the Spirit, the Spirit circumcises our heart. It's this this heart transformation. And it goes on to say, and and I'm going to make you so that you will do my law. You'll obey it because your heart's been transformed. Now skip down to verse 15. Deuteronomy um, 30, verse 15. It says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. In, the command, uh, in that I command you today, 
to love your Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But, verse 17, if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish, and you shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life. In order that you may live, you and your descendants. And it goes on. You got two choices, life or death. Choose life. Okay, now go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Okay, and again, Matthew 7 is the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the end of the section. The section includes chapters 8 and 9. Matthew 7. And look what Jesus does. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many enter by it. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. There are two roads, or two gates. Choose wisely. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. Ah, there's two trees. Choose wisely. And then he goes on to say, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, Matthew 7, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been found upon the rock. And who, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built this house upon the sand. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And it, great, and it fell and great was its fall. There are two houses. Choose wisely. The book of Deuteronomy is, look guys, there's life and death. I'm putting that before you. Choose life, choose wisely. And Jesus ends his sermon with, there's two paths. I hope you choose the right one. There's two kinds of trees, be the good one. There's two kinds of houses, be the one built up on the rock. It's the same, it's choose life, isn't it? Jesus frames the Sermon on the Mount as this new covenant for the new people of God. And then he says, now choose wisely. So that makes sense? (laughs) All right, I think that's, powerful myself so hopefully you do too so all right here we go the letter c i think it is on your notes it says the theme of this sermon is the kingdom of god the theme of this sermon is the kingdom of god and we know that for two reasons right anybody remember there's there's two reasons why we know the sermons this the thesis of matthew 5 6 and 7 are the kingdom of god The um, Beatitudes are framed by the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes begin it, and they're framed by the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, let me speak to that now. Matthew is a good Jewish person who refuses to use the word God. So Jews are not allowed to take Yahweh's name in vain. Obviously, we're not allowed either. And they simply avoided using it whenever possible. And so heaven is substitute for God. 
And we know that because you'll see the exact same saying in Matthew that says kingdom of heaven. And then in the gospel of Luke, they'll say exactly the same thing. And then I'll say kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, and Luke will say the kingdom of God is like, and it's the same parable. So Matthew's just substituting the heaven for God. So it's about the kingdom of God because we know the Beatitudes frame it. And there's another reason also, and this one might not be as obvious, but we read it earlier. Matthew 4, verse 23 and 9, verse 35, frame the whole section with, he was going through all the villages preaching about the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. And so this is the sermon about the kingdom of God. Obviously, the Beatitudes uh, present that as, as such. But this kingdom is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of, of what Moses was told. And so let's kind of go back to John's question a little bit now and kind of build on that. The first thing about that, and let's do the fill in the blanks. This is the nature of how one comes to be a kingdom person. For example, they're poor in spirit. And so the fill in the blank could be poor in, it could be any of the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, merciful, meek, they mourn, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. Now, let me also note this. Jesus' sermon, as with Deuteronomy, is about justice and about equity and about fairness and about, equal. I'll say equality, but I don't mean equality like everybody has the same amount. I mean equality in the sense that everybody has at least what they need. So Deuteronomy 15 says, there should be no poor among you. This is not a good, hey, just a helpful suggestion. I recommend it. It's like, no, it's a commandment. There should be no poor among you. Now, it later on goes on to say, you're always going to have the poor among you because there's always going to be needy people among you. Now, Jesus quotes that latter part by saying, there's always poor among you because you're just not obeying the law. Whereas in Deuteronomy, it's like, there's always going to be poor among you because there's always going to be needs. There's always going to be a famine. Somebody's always going to have a Ruth and Naomi are the epitome of those who are in need. Somebody help them. And Deuteronomy says, we got to chip in. Here's how we're going to do it. So in the, in the Beatitudes where it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Obviously Luke was taking that on the sense of those who actually hunger. But the word righteousness is a word that's almost so abused in modern Christian circles because we think righteousness, we think, oh, personal piety, personal faithfulness. I'm a righteous person because I prayed today. I'm a righteous person because I went to church or because I gave money or because I was nice to some old, older person. I'm being righteous. But the word righteousness is often a synonym for the word justice. So Jesus is framing this in this Old Testament context of fulfillment, and in the Old Testament context of fulfillment, it was to do justice. In fact, righteousness and justice are often paired together. I think I wrote a blog on this eight or nine months ago. Righteousness and justice are often paired together in the Old Testament. And so you can't, and the idea about, uh, between the two is that justice is what's needed to bring about a state of, of righteousness. Righteousness is when everybody has at least what they need. That's righteousness in, the, in this Old Testament context. Righteousness is there's no need among you. Justice is what's needed to be done to bring about that state of, of righteousness. And it might not mean like, oh, punishing somebody else. It might just mean, no, this person had a, there's a famine in that part of the, of the world and we have more of a, than a surplus up here in the North. We're going to give some of our goods to those who, down there in the South. That's simply doing justice. 
that make sense there? So when Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking about those who hunger and thirst for justice. And look what happens. They mourn. Why are they mourning? Because there's not justice. The context of all the Beatitudes are in this context of justice. And if we wanted to extend this conversation, by the way, with the Ten Commandments are all about justice. Because the one who gets away with murder in the Old Testament is the king and the powerful people. But if you make a law saying, thou shalt not murder, then at least the poor and the oppressed have some hope that they can get restitution for that murder. Don't covet. That's what the kings do when they take Naboth's vineyard and say, you know what, let's just kill the guy and take his vineyard. All the things about the Ten Commandments are what the powerful, wealthy kings and leaders do to the oppressed poor. And the Ten Commandments are meant to say, you can't do that. So, sorry, I know you want to work your guys seven days a week so you can get more of a benefit and of an income from, sorry, they have to rest the seventh day. The laborers want the seventh day of rest. The owners of the fields want them to work seven days a week. So the 10 commandments are also in this context of justice for the sake of the oppressed and the needy amongst us. And that's how we also need to read Jesus. So when he says, blessed are those who mourn, you're, you're mourning and weeping because there isn't righteousness right now. And I think, for example, you see a tornado wreak havoc in four or five states in the United States, and your first thought would be to be grieved, to be saddened by this. We see war and famine. We should be grieved and saddened by this. We see you know, a police car go flying by down our streets with the, with the siren on it, and, and we're grieved because something might be wrong, and we stop and we pray, Lord, help you know, keep the officers and the, the first responders safe and, and, and protect them, and also help them to do justice to whatever the need might be. That is living out the Beatitudes. Does that make sense? So this is the nature of how one comes to be a kingdom person. Another way of saying it would be, this is what a kingdom person looks like. Right, the, sec- the next thing would be that. So that's the Beatitudes. Then we skip on to verses 13, uh, 13 and following. And the next fill in the blank is that the mission of the kingdom of, of kingdom people is to be the light of the world. So the fill in the blank is light or light of the world. The mission of the kingdom. So you are the light of the world. And you're not meant to be you know, hidden, but, but to be put on a lampstand. And there we go. Now, this is what kingdom people look like, and this is what kingdom people do. Oh, we'll be the light of the world. Now, we're going to skip down to chapter 6. In chapter 6, it's like what kingdom people must avoid. And what we must avoid is doing things to be seen by men or by people. Doing things to be seen by, by others. So when you pray, when you fast, when you give, don't do it so you can be seen by others. Do it in secret. I've been in uh, churches around... Uh, I don't know if churches in the United States do this. I don't know if some churches in India do it, but I've been in other parts of the world where they go to take the offering and they have everyone march forward and they have their fists closed so that nobody can see what they're giving and they put it in the offering bucket. Of course, the problem with that is everybody's marching forward and being seen by everybody else. And if you are sitting still and you don't get up, everybody knows that you didn't give anything. So it's really funny because actually everybody in the church gets up, whether you have something in your hand or not. So they get up and they put an empty fist and, and they open it in a bucket and nobody knows that they dropped nothing into it, but they can't, they can't stay in their seat because then everybody would know they didn't give. And I'm thinking, well, that's not exactly, I get the idea. The closed fist is so that nobody can see what you're giving, but the fact that you're marching forward means everybody can see that you're giving. And if you're sitting down, and so I have to fake it and pretend that I'm actually giving by walking up with an empty hand and putting my hand in the bucket so nobody can see that. I, it's like, I'm not 
sure that's okay, whatever. Uh, it's the same thing with passing the plate, by the way, right? We pass the plate and, and maybe the people next to you can see whether you gave or not, but not, you know, not everybody's watching. It's like, you know, I like the idea of just putting the plate in the back, putting a bucket in the back of the room and saying, as you come in, put your ties in there. And as you leave, put your ties in there. That's great. We're done. You know, churches don't like doing that because people just don't give that. And it's like, well, so be it. Trust in the Lord. You know, but anyways, that's another, another topic. I never got that change made by the way, John and Shirley. So uh, I never got to implement that change at our church. So I'm like, I'm not touching the offering plate right now. We're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be okay with that. So, all right. Rob, Rob, something interesting as you mentioned that up, when I uh, was ushering at uh, one of, at the church I was at, um, I often was one of the money counters at the at the during the service after they'd taken the offering. And every week, there was always, you know, there was a lot of a lot of money given. Right, there was envelopes, there was cash, there were checks. Um, there was someone who always gave an index card, a blank, a folded index card. Uh, and uh, I often want, I, you know, I often felt for that person that he, that person probably felt pressured, you know, that uh, I don't want someone to think that I'm not giving. And who knows what yeah, that yeah. person may have given elsewhere or couldn't give or what position they were in but there was some symbolism there to me every time i saw that index card uh, folded up index card that someone felt that pressure that they had to you know that that may not have been why they did it but that right that's what i surmised and that may well be why they did it but nowadays let me so i think i've had this conversation with pastor jace by the way a couple times and and I think Pastor Jace's answer is that the putting the envelope, the envelope or money into the offering plate is an act of worship. And if you don't pass the plate around, you're depriving me of that opportunity to worship in the middle of the service. And my response to him is, look, you can worship. It's just a matter of when, you know, you put the, you put the money in the bucket as you came in or as you left or, or, or you give online, whatever it might be. So I often, and this will let John and John, surely you probably didn't figure it out anyways, I would almost always uh, take an, an envelope and it was an empty envelope. It was empty. And I put it in the offering plate because I gave online. And so I got that act of worship in the service by putting an empty, an empty envelope in the plate. So, so that was my worship. And it just reminded me I've already given, but right. Lord, here's, you know, here's my moment of worship for, for you. Right. Now that was my primary motive, but I'll be honest. There's a secondary motive. And that is that people are watching the pastor put an envelope in the plate too. And they're like, okay, the pastor is giving, therefore I can, you know, I'm, I'm role model. It's a role model. It just is, whether you like it or not. Right. You know, for example, you know, it's the Presbyterian church. So when I went to, you know, when I was up at you guys' church up in Northern California, I never raised my hands in worship. But I was at a Presbyterian church. I always raised my hand in worship. Uh, and the reason why I did is because I want you Presbyterians to know it's okay to do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping and I'm not doing it to be, to be seen by men. As much as I'm saying, I'm, I'm worshiping, and, and if you see me, that's fine, but I'm also letting you know, yeah, if you do see me, it's okay to do this. You know, so, so sometimes people may have other motives behind it, and it might be good and righteous motives and you know, things like that, too. And it, it's that tough, okay, am I doing it this to be seen by I men, remember- or am I not doing this to be seen by men? Well, I kind of am doing this to be seen by men, because I want the Presbyterians to know it's okay to do this, but I'm really doing this because I want to worship. 
right? Whereas when I was at a church in Northern California and, and half the people did, I'm like, All right, I don't, I can worship without doing that, you know, because I don't, I don't need to stick out, you know. So it's, it's, it's a, and I don't know what the right answer is necessarily, but I, I did both, so I, I would do both. So yeah, Anthony, we know the Lord knows our heart, but that, yeah, I right. struggled with that myself. Yeah, that's right. Gee, if I don't give, if I give online, and when the plate comes around and I'm not putting something in it, yeah. I, I felt guilty, right? Even though I. And I'm going, why? Well, you know, I'm not yeah. supposed to be showing what I'm giving anyway, but exactly, it, exactly. It, it, it's weird. Uh, and is it, are you feeling guilty because you think people around you might be judging you? Yeah. Right. I, Which they shouldn't be doing. Nature of kingdom people is poor in spirit, merciful mourning. The mission of the kingdom of God people is to be a light of the world. The kingdom of people, the kingdom of God people must avoid doing things to be seen by men. And the challenges that will lead the kingdom of people astray is the desire to serve two kingdoms. The desire to serve two kingdoms. So Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can, Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So start, obviously starting in verse 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. And again, remember heaven is where God's kingdom is. So not some spiritual realm. So the desire is in Romans 8 that we got the flesh and we got the spirit and the spirit wants me to live this way, but my flesh says, yeah, but I, but if I do that and give to the church, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough money to pay all my bills. Ah, and we, we struggle between those two things there. Okay. And that might not be the best example, by the way, because not everybody is necessarily called to give. If anyone, uh, next thing is, if anything is needed to complete the task, one must simply ask, seek, and knock. So the next fill in the blank is ask, seek, and knock. Matthew 7, ask and shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you. So you can see what Jesus is doing. This sermon is, is, is taking us on a journey that says, this is what kingdom people look like, the Beatitudes. This is your mission, and that is to be the light of the world. As the light of the world, don't do things to be seen by men. And then be careful not to desire the kingdom of the world as opposed to the kingdom. Of, you can't do both as opposed to the kingdom of God. You can't do both. And if you need anything to complete the task, ask, seek, and knock. And then what we discussed already earlier was the next one is there are two choices. So the fill in the blank is the word two. There are two choices. There are two paths, two trees, two claims, and two houses. And choose life. If you want to add Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and following, choose life. Now, the next thing is, in the middle of all that, is the dangers of the kingdom people must avoid as false teachers who attempt to soften the kingdom people's obligations. And I kind of added that last part in. I don't think that's explicit in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's certainly explicit elsewhere, where, wherever we go in the New Testament. That is, that false teachers, what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, you don't actually have to take up your cross and carry him and follow him. That's not what he means. You don't actually, you don't actually have to suffer. Or kingdom, kingdom uh, false teachers will say, well, you don't actually have to give up all your possessions and give them to the poor and follow him. You know, he doesn't mean that for everybody. And what we do then is we latch on to the kingdoms of this world where I have security and wealth and power and pleasure, and I'm not persecuted and suffering. And we've talked about that. And I think in the sermon on the, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four, where the, the good soil is the one that bears fruit, even despite the stones or even despite the thorns and stones are suffering and persecution and thorns are pleasure, power, comfort, things like that. And the false teachers go, 
oh yeah, you know, let's get rid of the, the, the thorns or let's get rid of the stones. Does that make sense, everyone? Mm-hmm. I think if you read the rest of the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, in light of the parable of the sower, or in light of the point I just made there in summarizing it, that false teachers are going to come and say, you don't have to do that, or you can go ahead and do this. As a result, you don't have to suffer. And then false teachers are going to come along and say, oh, you don't have to do that, or you can do this so that you can have prosperity or power or peace, etc." And in the Roman world of the first century, these were constant pressing questions. Remember, these are people who live day by day for their food. They did not know where tomorrow's food was going to go, where going to come from. They didn't have that wealth or power or comfort or security. And, you know, Paul's telling me I can't, I can't go to the pagan temples and do these things. And certainly the book of Revelation is telling me I can't do these things. And if I don't, Rome's going to come down hard on me. Oh, well, you know, it's okay. You, you know, you can eat food at the pagan temples because God knows your heart. And we know that those gods aren't real anyways. There's only one God. So false is going to come in and say, see, you can do these things. And now you don't have to suffer. Ah, we've, we've made it easy. Right. And I think uh, that speaks a lot to the modern day uh, church there also. All right. The final one then is there are two houses. So build wisely. There are two houses, so build wisely. What does anybody know what he means? We kind of read the passage a little bit earlier. So Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. What does he mean by there are two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand? What does he mean by house? What does he mean by rock? The house is a specific thing, and the rock is also a specific thing. I'll give you kind of that clue. Is the house your, your walk? I mean, you walk with the Lord, and okay. the rock is obviously the Lord. All right, very good, John. Uh, Anthony, uh, Andrew, what are we going to add? I was going to say the the rock is the the gospel, and then the house is the church. You know? Ooh, all right. I'll give you both one and a half stars because <laughs> because you kind of got it right. Yep, uh, that's correct. Uh, the house is the temple. Yeah. Okay. And of course, the temple today is the church, right? It's Jesus, and it's the church. The rock is Jesus. So build your house upon Christ, right? I will build my church upon this rock. You're Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. And it's Jesus. And then obviously, ultimately, the temple. The temple was built upon a rock and not upon sand because it won't stand. And the rock, of course, is Jesus. So exactly. All right, so let me go back now for a second, unless you have some other questions here, and kind of, I, I didn't build upon a statement that John had made earlier. We were talking about the Holy Spirit and how the law, we kind of skip Matthew 5, verses 20 through 40, uh, we skip verse 21 through 48. We kind of skip that section there and this quick overview of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus does in that section, he says, look, Moses says this, or the law says this, but I say this. And what he does in every one of those instances is he actually intensifies the law. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't get rid of the law. He intensifies the law. So you heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, you can't even have hatred in your heart. And what John was was talking about earlier, and, and the point at hand is this. The Pharisees answer is, well, we did the law. I didn't murder anybody. And if you do murder somebody, the law actually has provisions for the process of forgiveness. You do these sacrifices, you do these things, and you 
you pay somebody, you know, if you, if you take an animal and you kill it, then you pay them, you, comp, you know, compensate them this much. You do all these things and you're back on good, st- on good standing. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, listen, there's one sense about superficial obedience to the law. You didn't murder somebody, but you wanted to. You, you know, you hated them so much that if the opportunity were there, or if you knew you wouldn't get caught, you would do it. I'm right. What keeps us from committing murder? The fact that I want to go to prison. Otherwise, I know some people I'd like to get rid of right now. But Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm giving you a new heart, right? That's Ezekiel 37, uh, Jeremiah 31, all those, all those passages. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to transform you on the inside. So now I'm going to get rid of the hatred you have in your heart for your brother or your sister. You won't ever murder them because you don't even have hatred for them. And you're like, well, I'm not there yet. None of us are there yet, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there more and more and more. The people I used to hate, I don't hate as much anymore. Or I don't hate them at all. I still have trouble with this group over here, or with this person over there, or with that person. But I'm learning to love them. And you've heard them said, you know, don't commit adultery. But I said, you don't even lust in your heart because adultery begins with lust. And so each one of these laws and the fulfillment, Jesus is saying, the outward fulfillment of it is not enough. I'm concerned about the inner being. Remember in Mark 7, he's going to say, all foods are clean. And the reason why is because it's not what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. It's what, I'm sorry, it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. And it's no longer food that makes you unclean. It's now the condition of your heart. And of course, that had major implications for Gentiles and you know, non-Jewish people that now can all of a sudden become clean. It also means, however, that you Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs because your heart's not clean. You know, on the outside, you're, you're white, you're clean, right? But on the inside, you get dead men's bones. You can't be any more unclean than being a tomb. Does that make sense, John, of what you were asking about a little bit earlier there? And the, it's an intensification of the law because it used to be that as long as you didn't murder, you were okay, but now you can't even have hatred. And that's like a whole nother level because we all have hatred. And how do we overcome that? And it's a long process of relying upon the spirit. And that's what matters. It also means now that Gentiles or non-Jews can, be, can come in as long as they've repented and become cleansed by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. And also means that just because you're Jewish and a child of Abraham you're, doesn't mean you're in. And that's also a source of the conflict. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So to summarize, this is the, the law for the New Testament, New Testament people of God. He goes up on a mountainside and he gives this to the disciples or to all of his disciples or whoever the multitudes might be. And it's what kingdom of, pe- of God people look like. They're mourn, they're merciful, they, they hunger and thirst for right, righteousness and uh, things like that. And, and they're also persecuted. The mission then is for them to be the light of the world. They have to avoid doing things to be seen by men and just being merely religious. As a result, there's going to be this challenge between the two kingdoms. So the kingdom of the God and the kingdom of the world and be careful. You can't serve them both. If you need anything to complete the task, just ask, seek, and knock. And realize, of course, that there are two choices. There are two paths, two trees, two two houses. Build wisely. In fact, choose life. Now, the danger is always going to be false teachers who who teach us to compromise. By the way, it's not just false teachers. It's ourselves too, right? Because we all go to the text and say, I want it to say this. And I don't want it to say that. And we just read the Bible the way we want. And sometimes we talked about this last week that we have to take our want and just put that aside and say, Lord, 
I want to know what the truth is and then help me to follow, help me to find it and help me to follow it. Right, and then finally, of course, there are two houses, so build wisely. Very good. Now, you can't separate chapters eight and nine because now he goes out to do the work of the kingdom. He caused the blind to see, it makes the lame to walk, raises people from the dead. You know, Raising the widow's son from the dead means you're restoring your only male heir who's going to provide for your well-being. So that's an act of justice is what it is. Very good. All right. Excellent. All right, so we have an idea now what the kingdom of God is, right? It's, it's the kingdom of God is where Jesus is Lord. One second, Helen, where Jesus is Lord. We enter the kingdom of God through repentance. As a result of that, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. We realize that the fact that the kingdom of God operates opposite the way the kingdoms of the world do. Power is different. It's power of humility, the power of love, the power of sacrifice, the, the love for the sake of the other. Whereas the world operates by the power of, of military might and money and wealth and stepping on the little guy. It's a cosmic reversal of this entirety of creation. So the kingdom of God is the restoration of all of creation. And the result of that is kingdom of God people are obedient to the law because they're transformed. And as a result of the transforming power of the spirit, they fulfill the law and they are the light of the world. Very good. All right, Helen, you had, get your hand up. I just now saw it. I don't know how long it's been up, by the way. Sorry. Not that long. Okay. Um, so there's, um, I don't know if I can art articulate this. So when you said, I was thinking this because earlier on at the very beginning, you were talking about how Jesus was portrayed in Matthew as like Moses. But I was thinking, yeah, but it's, it's kind of opposite in how he's being portrayed because Moses went up the mountain and came down to talk to God and then came down the mountain Whereas Jesus stood on the mountain and the people went up to the mount to hear him. So that was sort of opposite. Right. And then in, uh, Moses died on Mount Nebo and told his people go in to the promised land. And Jesus died on the mountain and told his people to go out from the promised land. That's an opposite. So I'm just curious, is that also sort of highlighting that what you said, opposite of the world, of the way of the world? A little bit. I'm not sure that they're always opposites as much as it might be. A, there's, there's some measure of contrast, which is a little bit of quibbling uh -huh. over words now. Some measure of contrast. And then obviously the, the parallels aren't absolute. Right. Certainly Moses is getting the law from God and Jesus, is, he's the one who's giving the law. There's clearly a distinction there. And he's on the mountain. Yeah. But the point of that actually is that Mo, that Matthew's writing the gospel and framing Jesus as the new Moses, even if all the parallels don't actually match up fully. Okay. But what about Moses sending the people into the promised land? I think you can say Jesus is actually sending them into the promised land also. But the promised land actually now becomes the whole world. Oh, well, okay. So, so it's promise and fulfillment. And the fulfillment, of course, expands. So the promise the, with Moses, it was the law was this, but now with Jesus, the law is this, and it's an intensification of the law okay. and, and the sense of fulfillment. So if, if we read that, he's the new Moses in light <laughs> of the fulfillment. And remember, Jesus actually didn't die on the mountain. He right. on the mountain in Galilee, he, you know, he ascends into heaven later on. So yeah, yeah. not all the parallels are, are, are going to okay. be foolproof. Well, based on the fulfillment, I'm really, really curious about um. 518 and what he actually means by that. Okay. 
Um, I'll tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law. And then this part until everything takes place. So after everything has taken place, what's the law? Is there a law then? What's that? What happens then? What's that mean? I'm curious. Can you ask that question again? Let me see if I can grasp exactly what you're asking. Well, he says he's not going to abolish, but to fulfill and strengthen and deepen. And then he says, um, but to fulfill them, um, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law. So it won't be changed. Nothing's going to change at all until everything takes place. So to me, that means after everything's taken place, then the laws is going to change. Something's it's going to change. What does that? Well, I guess I, I'm asking that heaven means. and earth will pass away. Then I think yeah. that's what when, when the law is fulfilled completely is when heaven and earth pass away. And that's the, the old creation is gone. And the new creation has come the consummation of the law and its fulfillment. And what the, the, the point of that actually remember the previous verse is you're the light of the world. When the law is fulfilled by the, well, let's just say it this way. When the law is fulfilled by the church, when we live it out, the result of that is that the nations come in and begin to embrace this. And when the nations embrace this, at some point, God says, that's the consummation I've been waiting for. Judgment day happens. Heaven and earth are passed away. New heaven and a new creation happens then. And that's the end of time as we know it. There you and go ahead. And there's no law. Uh, well, the, no, law, the, law. The, the law then continues to exist because let's put it this way. In the new Jerusalem, do we love God and do we love one another? Yeah. The, the point right. of actually is that the law is not only on our hearts, that there's no more sinful nature any longer, right? So get Derek. Right. And also in that process of getting to everything happening, it's like we, in theory at least, become love. Mm -hmm. And so in theory, you know, the law doesn't have to be there to tell us, to help us stay where in our fence mm -hmm. of unsinfulness. Right. Okay, yeah. That wasn't said well, but. You know, I looked at it on the, along the same lines because I saw it more as restoration. Yeah. In this fulfillment. And it's funny because when you were in Deuteronomy, it talked about an inheritance. I believe the word was inheritance, but of the land. Mm -hmm. uh, um, how was how it phrased? And of the land and of prosperity. Yes. But that land is not the literal land. And reading your book on eschatology, if I'm not mistaken, that's yeah. a complete restoration of the garden and earth itself. Yes. So you will have a moment when earth and heaven are bound together in the completion of the restoration where everything is made like new again. We are reformed. We are restored. There is the law because it is a beauty of love. But that is also the part, um, like I said, the land of oh, the prosperity. The prosperity is being in the midst of that love. What greater prosperity could you have? There is no right. need or want for money or anything else. So I think I'm kind of tracking with both Derry and Helen, but I was trying to see it in the proper light based upon how I've been taught. Is, is yeah. that remotely accurate or? Yeah, it's so when heaven and earth pass away, it's because they're what, what is meant by that is the death, the sin, the decay, all that's judged and gone. It doesn't mean that, that, that they're annihilated, that they exist no longer, but they've been redeemed and restored and recreated and renewed. And in that renewal, the law is written on our hearts because, you know, you could say the way Derry said it, we become love, or you could say the way an Orthodox would say it, we become God. 
you know, not in the, the problem with saying it that way is that evangelical is like, oh, what? You're, we don't, no, we don't become God, but we become with like God. God. Yeah, in one God. with, and that's yeah. some thing that's beyond our ability to fully comprehend, right? But the point of that would be that our sinful nature has now gone away and therefore there's no need for a law because we simply do it. That's what we, that's, that's who we are. All right, so have a good Christmas. Um, we're gonna have a new podcast coming out next week on viewing the birth stories of Jesus as light of Jesus becoming the king. It's the birth of the king, not just the birth of our savior or some great baby in the manger story. It's way beyond that. So if you wanna to listen to that next Tuesday, it should come out. And what we're gonna do with a podcast are actually gonna help guide you through a reading of the New Testament in a year. So instead of reading the whole Bible, if you wanna just like read the New Testament in a year, I'm going to provide you every month with a day, a five day a week devotional guide that will lead you through and help you understand what you're reading. We're going to start with the gospel of Mark in the month of January, and I'll have notes and ideas and read these chapters today. Here's some things to process. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short. And then there'll be some questions. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? The questions are meant for your individual devotion or for your group devotion. So if you have a group of Bible study group, you can do that. And then we'll have two or three episodes on Tuesdays uh, that'll be released on the podcast that will be discussing the gospel of Mark and help you understand even more what you're reading so that you're not going to just read the Bible in a year or the New Testament in a year, but you're going to understand it and be able to consume it better. And then in February, we'll do math. We'll do Matthew and March. We'll do Luke, etc. And each month I'll give a new study guide or new devotional guide. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.